right, we're going to open up today. Uh, we're continuing in the book of Acts, and we're going to open up by jumping way back in the story, okay? the story of the people of God, all the way back uh, to the beginning, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I want to read this to you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, so this is before he's Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this is the key, this is the reason I chose this, this is the covenant with Abraham, this last sentence is what I want to talk about for a sec. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The story, we talked on Wednesday night about the breakup and the divisions in the Bible. And if you remember, if you were there on Wednesday night, I said, if you only read the New Testament, you're missing, what is it, like three quarters of the Bible or more than that even? The, the Old Testament is this big chunk of our holy scriptures. And the Old Testament is the story of the people of God, right? It's a, it's a true history, but it's a selective history. There's no chapter on, like, you know, the Egyptian pharaohs and the, the list of, you know, that's not what it is. It's a story specifically that follows the thread from here. God went to this guy named Abram, and he says, basically, for no reason in you at all, I just, I picked you, and you're going to be the guy. And from you, I'm going to give you grace and mercy, and then from you, you're going to have some kids, and they're going to have some kids, and these kids are going to be the people of God. And through this people of God, I'm going to do something special. I'm, through the people of God, I am going to bless all the families of the earth. And so the people of Israel, the whole story of the Old Testament is the people of Israel, mostly failing to live up to their calling as the people of God, to not live up to their calling to bless the nations and to reach out to the nations, um, and... Uh, just assuming, well, I'm born a Jewish person, and so I'm in. That's what, that's what we needed here. I just had to be born to the right family, and then I'm in. But then what happens is this rabbi comes along in the New Testament, this guy Jesus, right? And, you know, have you heard of him? Anyway, and uh, Jesus comes along, and he upends the entire system. And we read about this a lot in the book of Luke. Jesus comes along, and he challenges this whole view that just... God loves these people more than everybody else, and just being one of these people, you're in, and if you're not one of these people, you're out. And Jesus challenges this whole system. Look what he says uh, in Matthew. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So they're just saying, look, I'm good. I have Abraham as an ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me sorry, is uh, mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Uh, this is, sorry, this is um, John talking about Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So here's what's going on. Uh, and then this theme of Jesus versus the religious establishment is carried throughout the, all of these Gospels. He was constantly butting heads with the guys who were in charge, these, mostly the Sadducees and mostly the Pharisees. And he, you know, he goes in and he teaches at the temple, and he teaches everything these other guys are teaching was wrong. And then he, he turns the tables over at the temple and... Um, you know, he's constantly butting heads with these guys. And now, then they kill him. And he rises, ascends into heaven. That's what we read last week. And now, we have this new group of his disciples. And they're going to come along, and they're going to say, okay, we are not part of the old system anymore. We're not part of the, the temple system exactly. And they're making a crazy claim, like a crazy uh, bold claim. This is what these new disciples are claiming, that we, these new group, this new group of little disciples, we'll read in a minute, it's 120 of them, about 120 of them, this new group of disciples were the continuation of the story of Abraham. You guys aren't. Just being born Jewish isn't enough. Just being born to the right family and being born part of this people is not enough. 
And so the question then is, which one of these two people really is continuing this story? Which one of these is picking up the torch? And Because uh, these, these disciples are claiming we are them. And what we're going to read today is sort of one of the foundational texts of this claim, that we Christians are the continuation of that, that Old Testament story. Right? Uh, Paul talked about this. Um, I don't have a slide for this, but Paul talked about this in Ephesians when he says that, uh, he says, in the middle of a sentence, I'm going to pick this up in the middle of a sentence, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is important. He says that the, the, the apostles were the foundation, right? These guys were, the, this, they were this new people of God, and then the whole church was built on, on top of it. And then he says, and Jesus Christ, of course, was the new cornerstone. Today we're going to read about the beginning of how these 12 guys, well, it starts with 11 and we'll end with 12 today, how these 12 guys claimed, made this massive claim to be the continuation of the story of Abraham. And then what we'll see as we continue on through the whole first, remember we're breaking Acts into four parts. And what we're going to see is this whole first part specifically is uh, framed as the battle between two temples, right? The new temple of the people of God as the temple and the old temple, the, the second temple. And which one really carries the presence of God? Which one really carries the story of salvation? Which one is fulfilling the mission to take the gospel to the nations? And so we're going to be constantly seeing either it's the Christians or it's these Jewish religious leaders, the establishment leaders in the first century, but it can't be both. And so that framework is really going to help us understand the passage today and not misinterpret the passage today. Okay, so we're going to start. Uh, we read up until verse 11 last week. We kind of cut it off in the middle. So a lot of these texts um, include verse 12. Uh, with the last one we did, and a lot of people break it up and include it here today. That's how I did it. So it says here in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So last week, we left it with Jesus ascending into heaven, and then the angels telling the people, the, the disciples, Hey, what are you looking up into heaven for? And we kind of joked, well, isn't it obvious why Jesus just blasted off into the clouds, Superman blasted off into the clouds, you know? Where else are we going to look? And he says, go back to Jerusalem, you know? And just like Jesus had said, and then the, um, the angel promises he'll come back the same way. But Jesus had told them, go wait in Jerusalem. And then we pick up in verse 12. So they returned to Jerusalem, right, from the Mount of Olives, from the place where the ascension happened. Um, and it was a Sabbath day's journey away. So already... Luke is using that phrase for a very specific reason. He wants you to remember these crazy rules that the religious establishment had added for no reason. Not for no reason, but for not a good reason. The, this religious establishment had turned this beautiful religion of grace and mercy into this religion of works and burdens. And so a Sabbath day's journey was about a half a mile. And if you walked more than that, you were breaking the Sabbath. The problem with it is there's nothing in the Old Testament that says anything remotely like that. Right, so they had added all these rules and these regulations to make sure that nobody ever broke one of God's laws. We're going to go above and beyond. So it's about a half a mile. So they walk back. The Mount of Olives right now, you can go there. It's kind of right in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Um, it's right next to, you know, it's just on the other side of, I think it's the Kidron Valley from where, uh, this, where they would have been staying. So they go back um, and it says, uh, verse 13, when they had entered the upper room. So this is the upper room. We're not sure exactly, scholars and everybody's not sure exactly where this was or what this looked like, um, but we have some clues. Um, this was, we learned later in Acts that John Mark's mom had a big house with a big upper room like this. So somebody with a room like this in the middle of Jerusalem would have been wealthy, right? Okay, so like imagine if I said to you, um, you know, yeah, uh, I live in downtown, or you know, I live in San Francisco and I have my own private pool. You would go, what? How big is your house? Right, that's the same idea here. An upper room was a pretty rare thing to have in the city, except for a couple of folks with a lot of money. And so John Mark's mom, we learned she's the one who owned this house. We can also kind of, th through some clues, we can tell it was probably near the temple, as we'll read next week. This may or may not have been, but probably was, the place where the Last Supper happened. And we know that this room here is big enough to hold 120 people, because that's how many people are up there in our story today. 
And this is kind of the earliest place that the church met. You know, this is the first place the church got together. They got together waiting patiently and obediently in the upper room. Now, uh, Luke gives us the list of these, um, the list of the apostles. He says, uh, so they went up to the upper room where they're staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So um, Judas, the son of James, let's remember, that's a different Judas, right? Usually it's like, there's Judas, and then there's the Judas who betrayed him. That's usually how these lists go. Now, the ordering of things in the ancient world was very important. Okay, so like, have you ever thought about some couple you know? Do you say Kayla and John, or do you say John and Kayla? And in our culture, whichever one you say first doesn't matter at all. <laughs> if I go to these guys and I go, Kayla and John, are you guys coming over for dinner? John doesn't go, I'm the husband, how dare he? You know, that's not a thing in our culture. In the ancient world, it was a thing. And so we know one very important thing from the ordering of these lists. The first thing is Peter is always first in these lists. Every list of the disciples, the apostles, Peter is always first. And we'll read in a minute. He was the clear leader of the apostles at the very beginning. The second thing we always see is Judas Iscariot, when he's listed, is always last, the betrayer, the one who betrayed Jesus. And then everybody else in the middle is always in a different order. And then even some of them had two names. You know, a lot of people in the ancient world had two names. So some of these folks had two names, and they're using different names in each list. Right? So there's a few... Uh, you know, differences in some of these lists. So that's what we know. Peter was kind of the clear leader. Um, we don't have time to talk about every one of these guys today. We did a sermon on, uh, I wrote this down, Luke 6. Um, in Luke 6, 12, and then the next few verses is the list of the uh, disciples. And we did who was each one of them and then what happened to them in the book of Acts and then what happened to them after the book of Acts closes, and how did they die, and what do we know about them from church history? And what we concluded was it's kind of amazing how God used a whole bunch of nobodies and then created the church that we know today, right? Twelve losers, and then look at us today. You know, these were, these were not special. These were not the cream of the crop kind of guys. Okay, so we don't have time to get into all that today. Today we just see, okay, there's 11 guys in this list, um, and verse 14, all these were, uh, sorry, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I love this. It, it's so great the way he says this. All these were uh, devoting themselves, it, sorry, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Churches today aren't really known for unity, are we? Right? If you go ask people outside of the church, what's your impression of church people? I mean, it's not great. And one of the things that's not great about it is how much churches don't get along and how much church people don't get along with each other within the church. I mean, I was at a church that split and there was a vote and we fired a pastor and it was a whole thing. And then I took over as the lead guy for a while. And there was a lot of contention and fighting within that church. And in general, that's kind of our reputation. And it's kind of sad because Jesus specifically prayed for our unity in the high priestly prayer. And us being united is one of the ways um, that the, the church, I'm sorry, the world will know that we are his disciples. That's what he said. And so here, though, it's a beautiful picture. They're, with, they're all with one accord. Now, I think he's talking here, and we'll read in a minute. This is the whole company of 120 people, right? It was all with one accord. Not just, it wasn't saying uh, the other guys weren't really feeling it, but the, tw the, the 11 apostles, man, they were really getting along well. It was the whole group was getting along well. Um, some translations say that they had one mind, and that's a really good way to put it, um, is they had one mind. You know that idea. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody had the exact same idea as you, and you both started to say it, and then you went, yeah, 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 let's do that. In a situation like that, you never have, like, when we're picking a restaurant, and I go, let's get Moe's, and everybody goes, yes, Moe's, you know, because that's usually what happens. And then I don't have to convince you to get Moe's because you guys all love it, too. Um, that's what's going on here. They have one mind, and they're all on the same page. Now, remember, last week we talked about, as we read the book of Acts, we have to decide, are the things that we're reading prescriptive or descriptive? Meaning, are the things that we're reading, these stories, lessons for the whole church for all of time, or are they just lessons 
that happened, are these just describing the thing that happened and there's no real deep spiritual lesson there that we have to abide by? And I think this is one of those areas where it's very clearly, this is the way church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be with one mind and we're supposed to be united. And I think this happens on two levels, okay? I think, and uh, I don't want to toot our own horn, but I think our church does this pretty well. Like, in other churches I've been a part of and other pastors I know would have to stop here and do a whole sermon, but I don't think we have to. What I mean by this, there's two levels. We have to get along with each other, right? And we have to be the kind of people who say what's best for the community and what's best for the other people in the community and not just what's best for me. And I can tell you as the pastor who's been pastors at other places, who's been a pastor at other places, right, you guys do a pretty good job of this. I get very few complaints from you about, oh, I can't believe you did this thing. That's not the way I would have done it, right? I think in general, we do a pretty good job of thinking about each other. The second way that I think we're also pretty good at this is outside of our church, unity with other churches. And you guys have done a great job when I said, hey, we're going to do this partnership with Trinity first. You guys said, great, you know, and add the partnership with the EFCA church has been great. And then when I said, hey, I know we don't have any money and... Um, uh, this is not really part of our plan, but God is clearly working in the life of this kid, you, this guy you guys have never met who's one of my guitar club dudes back in the day. <laughs> I said, we're going to bring him on and we're going to send him out and he's going to do great and we're going to be really happy about that. Everybody went, okay, pretty good. Yeah, that sounds like fun, you know? So I think our church has, has done this well and I want us to continue to do it well. Hopefully our church will grow a little bit and we'll grow up a little bit. And what I don't want to happen is as that happens and we go, oh, now it's just about me, right? So we want to be like these guys. But also, here's the thing, though. Now you're just feeling pretty good about yourself, aren't you? Hmm, yeah, I'm the best. We're the best church ever, right? Okay, but here's the thing. Not only were they with one mind, but they, were, they shared one mind about something specific. And that's the part I don't think we're super good at. And so this is where we need to work. It says they were devoted to uh, devoting themselves to prayer. The mark of the first church was prayer, right? What did Jesus do the night when he was arrested? He prayed. What did Jesus do when he picked the 12 originally in the book of Luke? He prayed. Throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that they get together and they pray. And I think, I don't think we're bad at this. I just think we could go deeper in our time together with prayer. And so we are going to have this year, as we read the book of Acts, we're going to have some Wednesday nights where we're going to stop what we're doing with the How to Study the Good book. And we're going to stop and we're going to do some prayer. And I'm going to try to, one of the things I want to do is try to rope more of you guys into doing the, the time of prayer after the announcements that we do in church, taking the requests. I want, to, I want to mix it up a little more, and I want us to be, as we have one mind together about unity, then I want us to take that, and I want us to apply it specifically to prayer just like they did, they did here. All right, let's keep going, though. Um, look at the team, though. So he says, the, these disciples, they were with one each other. They were with one mind in prayer. And also, look who else was there. Um, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So look at these groups. First is the women. Now, for us, uh, when we read this, we think, hmm, uh, of course there were women there, right? It's the early church, whatever, you know. To somebody reading this, though, as you read Luke and Acts in the ancient world, this would have been a radical, kind of crazy idea. Jesus had women disciples, not the 12, but there were a whole group of women who, if we're being honest, seemed a lot better than the disciples as you read the Gospels, right? They're faithful. They support him. There's like 38 Marys, a couple of Marthas, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of them. That's this group. They're still here. Part of that group of women who were super supportive and uh, super supportive of Jesus and were super important in the early church was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Specifically, Luke mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, here's what I want to say about Mary. Catholics give her way too much importance. As you go to Catholic church, they pray to Mary. They do a lot of stuff, right? They, they hold Mary in very high esteem. They have a theology, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, they have, you know, they think Mary never sinned. There's a lot of stuff that I don't think is biblical about the way they treat Mary. But on the flip side of that, I think... Part of the Protestant thing is we went, eh, you know, that's the whole, that's my history of the Protestant Reformation. We looked at the Catholics and went, eh, you know, start our own thing. And we're not going to do anything like they did. And so then we don't talk about Mary at all. She was actually one of the most amazing people in history. 
But here's the deal. And more of us should have her attitude. If you remember way back early in Luke, I mean, she's a teenage girl and this angel shows up and said, hey, God's going to ruin your life and you have to raise this kid and everybody's going to hate you. But it's all because of God's plan. And she went, all right, let's do it. Well, first she went, how's that going to work? I'm not married yet. And he explained it and she's like, all right, let's do it. I mean, she's an, as a teenage girl, she had more faith than most of us ever did, right? Or ever will have. She's an amazing person. But here's the thing. This right here is the last time she's ever mentioned in scripture. And what is, how is she mentioned? Why is she so important here? Right? She's the mother of Jesus. Okay. But she's in a list of what? Disciples. Right? If you meet Mary in heaven someday, and I'm sure you will, and you'll sit down with her and she'll tell you all the stories about Jesus's childhood and um, how he always did the dishes and whatever, you know, and You'll meet her. But the thing that she would tell you, I bet, is uh, how amazed she is that she got to be a disciple of Jesus. That she knew she was a sinner and she got to the same salvation that everybody else gets. She would say, yeah, being Jesus' mom was really cool, but it was not even half as cool as being one of his people. Right? Being a disciple. And so I think that's the thing that we should emulate with Mary. Is imagine the humility to go, I'm going to worship my kid. Right? <laughs> I think my kid is the Lord. I mean, she's an amazing woman. But also, she had some other kids, right? Uh, well, we'll talk about that here. Right? Jesus' brothers were also there. So the, question, the big question is, whose kids are these? How, who are these brothers? Um, there's four options. There's Joseph kids from another marriage. There's uh, cousins is the second option. Uh, there's cousins who were raised as brothers, but most likely they're just his Joseph and Mary had more kids, right, after, and he had some sisters as well. We know the names, though, of the brothers, a couple of them. There's James, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he wrote a book called James. Said it right there on my arm, right? Uh, we know his other brother was Joseph or Joseph, and then the third brother was Judas or Jude, uh, who wrote the book of Jude, right? So two of his brothers wrote books of the Bible, and they didn't always believe that their brother was something special, though. In Mark 3, we learn they thought he was nuts. And in a, in a culture that was an honor and shame culture, Jesus was out there embarrassing the family. And they didn't like it. And they were trying to stop, actively stop the ministry of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you fast forward a couple of years, and here they are worshiping him as Lord. And I always say this when we talk about that benediction in the book of Jude. I love that benediction because it was written by Jesus' brother, and do you know what it would take? Wait, let me just flip to it. Let's see. I'm doing the song in my head. Let's see. Hebrews, James. For a second. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forevermore. Amen. Okay. You know what it would take for me to write anything even remotely that close uh, about my brother? Is I would have to see him get murdered and then die and say, and now, and rise, sorry, murdered and die, rise from the dead in glorious fashion and ascend back into heaven while everybody was worshiping him. That is literally the only thing it could take to make one brother write something like that about the other brothers. And the fact that Jesus' brothers all became believers is super cool, but it's also super... Um, it's a great uh, um, uh, foundation for what we believe. It's a historical idea that shows, man, these people, these guys really did this. Like his brothers turned to worship him. All right, so we have the brothers, we have his mom, we have these women, we have the 11. And so in the middle of all of that, while they were praying, in the middle of the prayer meeting, Peter stands up. Uh, oh, wait, let me jump here. Uh, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said. Now, I want to say a couple of things. The first is the company, it says there was about 120. We don't know exactly how many people were there. It was about 120, right? Let's just say 120. But do you know why it was 120? Because uh, to become your own... Um, what was it, like a synagogue kind of movement? You had to have 120 people, right? And so anybody reading this would go, well, there's enough of them to be an actual movement, 
right? If it was, you know, if it was five guys, they're like, ah, oh, that's just five guys. But writing down 120 was very specific, even if it was 110 or if it was 130 or whatever, saying about 120. Now, Peter now stands up as a leader. Why is Peter the leader of the church at the beginning? And the reason is because he's better than everybody else? No, because he's actually the worst one of all of them, <laughs> right? The living ones anyway. But look at um, uh, Josue knows this first. I want to show you two verses. The first one is this. Now, in, from Matthew. Now, when they came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others Jeremiah and the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, that means the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. And we're not going to get into all that now. But basically, they were having this conversation, and Jesus asked, who do you guys think I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, right? You're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yes, that's the, that statement, not you specific, but that statement, and because of you said that statement, that's what I'm going to build my church on. But he was the one that said it. He was the guy who quickly understood the gospel, even if a lot of the things he did were kind of boneheaded. And we fast forward, and he betray, or denies, not betrays, he denies Jesus on the night of his death, right? And so after that all happened, Peter was heartbroken. And he thought, look what I did to my Lord. Right? I denied that I even knew him. And so this is the, at the end of the book of John. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then one more verse. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after this, he said, follow me. This is a crazy story. Peter had just denied knowing Jesus three times. And so three times, Jesus publicly forgives him. And then at the end of it, he says, so, and he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. You're going to be the one. You're going to be the one who's the leader in the early church. But also, you're going to be the one who they're going to stretch out your hands. And this is what happened. Peter was crucified. Uh, a couple, you know, 30 years later. And so he says, you're going to glorify me through your death, but until that, you're going to lead, um, you're going to lead the church. So Peter, as this leader of the church that Jesus has kind of appointed, he stands up and he says this, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So Peter stands up, and the first thing he says is brothers. That's a Greek word, adelphos. And it means more than brothers. It means literally it means brothers, but what it really means is kind of like siblings uh, in a wider sense. Some translations will say brothers and sisters. Um, the idea, though, is that this early church thought of, them, thought of themselves as a new family. Do you remember this from the book of Luke? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, this new discipleship with me is going to be so important. You're going to love me so much that in comparison, you're going to hate everything else. Not really hate, but you know what I mean? It'll look like it because you love me so much. And this early church got together and they said, they took that and they went, wow, this new redemption that we've received, this new salvation that we've received in the Lord is so important to me that in a world of family and clan culture where family was the most important thing, these people got together and said, this church is my new family. And they picked up that talk. They would, they would call each other brother and sister. And so, um, wait, let me jump back here. 
uh, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. So Peter now is saying, I've been thinking about the Bible as we're praying, and I think that the Bible speaks to the situation that we're in. And I, we talked about this when we did inspiration. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. We're not going to get into a whole sermon on inspiration. But the Holy Spirit spoke through the scriptures, and specifically, though, about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, um, there have been lots of books written in, over the years about how the New Testament writers and apostles used the Old Testament. We're not going to get into all that here. Safe to say there's no psalm about Judas. There's no psalm that says Judas is going to betray Jesus. Right? There's nothing like that. But what there are is there's patterns in the Old Testament. And Peter sees a pattern and he says, you know what? Like the stuff that happened to David, that's what happened to Jesus. And we can learn from what we see in the Psalms. And then he says, though, um, he's talking specifically about Judas betraying. And so there's this little, like, interlude. What happened to Judas? Um, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. So Judas really was one of the twelve. He wasn't like a pretend disciple. He really was one of the disciples. And he went out with the 72 and he preached and he healed and people, some guy got saved by listening to Judas preach. Okay, he really was one of them. He had a share in the ministry. So what happens? Luke gives this, this is the end of Peter talking. Now Luke gives a little parentheses for his readers that might not know the story. Verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. The problem with that sentence is he didn't buy the field, right? What happens is Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He feels bad about it, so he tries to give the money back. They won't take it. He throws it. He leaves. They pick up the money, and the chief priests buy the field. Now, remember, this is one of those things where we're very modern and scientific thinking, and in our mind, that seems like a discrepancy. But in the ancient world, they would have gone, well, it was Judas's money that bought the field. These two things don't really contradict. So he bought that field um, uh, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. This is why we have the kids in their own program out in the back. Uh, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, the field of blood. So what happened to Judas? This is the big question, because in Matthew's gospel, Judas hung himself. In Acts, something completely different. He bursts open. We're going to take a little side note here, and I want to talk about this. What's going on? I'm going to give you the four options. You ready? Write this down. It'll be on the test. Option one, Matthew uses the phrase, he hung himself, as a catch-all for suicide. It was just a way that, you know, they would have used that same phrase for all different kinds of suicide. But what really happened is that he threw himself off of a cliff somewhere, you know, and kind of like jumping off something high, and he splat, and then he died. Um, why would Matthew use the phrase hung himself, though? Because hanging yourself had a lot more shame in this culture. And it was a way to say you would have used it just for suicide. That's one option. The second option is, uh, these guys are wrong and we should all just go home. That's not one of the options we can take. The third option is the rope. He tried to hang himself and the rope or the branch or something broke and he fell very far and bust open. And so you could say both of those things. He hung himself, the rope broke, whatever. Uh, the fourth option is after death by hanging, Nobody cut him down, and let's not get too graphic here, but if, you know, it happens to a body that gets left out, it gets all puffy, and, and it, uh, one time I was at the beach, and there was like a sea lion there, and it was huge and swelled up, and uh, I was 15, so of course, I'm going to poke it with a stick, right? <laughs> no, I was smart enough not to poke it with a stick, but I definitely hit it with a rock uh, from about pitching distance, where I'm pretty accurate, hit it with a rock, it exploded, it was the worst smell in the history of smells, and we had to get out of there. Fort Funston, right? Anyway, so potentially something like that happened, right? Judas was left up there and eventually pff, something like that. The, the truth is it doesn't really matter how Judas died. There's a handful of ways to resolve this. That's not a, this is not a hard contradiction. It's not like Jesus is the Messiah and then in this other one, like 
Peter's the Messiah, right? Something like that. It's just, there's a historical something. We don't know exactly what's going on. The point was, the, the point of it all is this. Judas was given this massive honor. You get to be one of the 12, part of the inner circle who gets to spend time with Jesus, who gets to usher in this new era of the kingdom on earth, but he left his job and he set aside what he had been given. And instead of following Jesus as Lord, he betrayed him and sold him out for money. And now the 12 is 11, right? So now we're missing one. As Peter's looking around, he goes, we're supposed to be 12 guys, but we're only 11. And so now that's the parentheses that Luke gives. Now back to Peter's speech. So Peter quotes from the Psalms. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So the first quote is from Psalm 69:25, And it's a Psalm, and on Wednesday, we talked all about the Septuagint. And a lot of times the New Testament quotes the Septuagint. This is one of those places. And so he's quoting uh, this Greek translation. And here's the context is David is pleading for wrath to fall on one of his enemies. He's struggling with an enemy. And the enemy was a guy named Doeg. And Doeg found some priests who had helped. Uh, He was a foreigner. He had found some priests. He was like outside of the covenant people. Found some priests who had helped David. And then he killed them because they had helped David. And so David is praying, Lord, may his camp become desolate and let their be no one to dwell in it. Basically, drop the hammer on this guy so that there's nobody living in his house. That's a pretty bold thing to pray. This is like praying, Lord, you know, Dodger fans, burn their house down and all of their Dodger hats and jerseys and, no, something like that, right? Like, that's the idea. These guys are the enemy and whatever. The next quote is, and let another take his office. This is from Psalm 109. This is another Psalm of David. And here he describes, uh, we don't know who this one's about, a wicked enemy, And this guy, though, was not like Doeg, who was an outsider. This guy was a part of the community of faith and had betrayed David, and now we have to find a new guy to fill his job. So this would be like if the president had one of his cabinet members do something that he didn't like, so he fires him, and now we have an empty cabinet seat. We have to fill this seat. So let another take his office. And so that's why Peter suggests, um, Peter is, oh, sorry, Peter sees this, these psalms, and he applies it to Jesus. He says, Judas was an enemy and a traitor, and he used to have this, just like Doeg, and he used to have this job, and now he doesn't, but we need to fill his seat. And so that's why um, Peter suggests this in verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us, wait, did I miss something here? Uh, No, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from them, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. So here's the idea. Let's replace him. Why? Here's the big question, though. Why not just move forward with 11? Judas is gone. Once these apostles started dying, the church didn't replace them. When, when James died, John's brother, he was the first one of these guys to die, they didn't have an election and replace him. That was it. So the question is, why not just do that here? Why not just let Judas fade off into the distance and start with 11? Because the number 12 was extremely important to anybody who knew anything about the Old Testament. What's the number 12 in the Old Testament? Tribes. There's 12 tribes, right? And they're saying that these 12 apostles, those 12 tribes are the foundation of the religion of Israel. And so what they're saying is we need 12 because this number is so important to us. Because 12 means we're the new continuation of this story. And so we're going to start with 12, And then as they die off, we're not going to replace them. So the office of apostleship is not a permanent thing. There were 12 guys, and then actually later on, they kind of used the word apostle to talk about Paul and Barnabas and some other guys. But really, there were these 12. These were the solid guys, right? And so let's pick a guy. Here's the two qualifications. He had to be with us the whole time because he had to see all of Jesus' teaching and learn all this stuff from Jesus. And the second thing is he had to be a witness of the resurrection, Because this is our mission, right? In Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? So he has to be somebody who actually saw Jesus rise from the, who saw the risen Christ. And so they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Pick a name, guy. Guy has three names. Uh, And Matthias. So they put forward these two guys out of, you know, there's about 120. So, you know, take 11 away, right? 100. Nine, 
people left-ish rounding. Out of those 109 people, only two guys fit that qualification. Or, we don't know for sure, fit that qualification and went, yeah, I want to be an apostle. Because they all knew what Jesus had said about what was going to happen to all these guys, that they would suffer and all this stuff. And so they put him forward. And this is important. And then they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. So this was not an election. This was not, let's vote on this leader. This was, God, we need you to pick this guy. So they pray. Uh, and then you show us which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This is important. Uh, Judas was an outsider. Judas was never really a believer, right? He walked away from the faith, and that showed what was going on in his heart all along. And Luke uses this term that doesn't mean a lot to us, but I think is actually very powerful in the original like to the original readers. He, went, he turned aside to go to his own place. Um, this one commentator, Belinda Chang, says, uh, do I have this in here? Yeah. Saying that Judas has gone to his own place means he ended up in a place different from the 11. This was a euphemism for the eternal judgment among the lost. Right? Basically, what he says is we need to replace him. They're praying this, Lord, because Judas was on the road to heaven and he walked off and he went to hell. He'd rather be in hell than in heaven. And so we need to replace him. So how, do, how are we going to replace him? We've prayed. What next? The most spiritual, wise thing the disciples ever did. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So you know what casting lots is? Okay. Odds and evens. One, two, three, shoot. <laughs> or rolling dice. Something like that. There were different casting lots. There were a lot of different ways to cast lots. Um, Here's the thing, though. It seems to us like, are these guys nuts? But it was actually an Old Testament thing. I don't know how to pronounce this. Urim and Thummim? You know about this? Okay. How do you say it? Thum? Thum? Okay. Sure. I don't know. It's in the Old Testament. I read about it. Never heard anybody say it out loud. But it's basically these two rocks that were in the high priest's breastplate, and they would take them out, and they'd roll them like dice. <laughs> see what God has to say. So this is a very actually biblical thing that they were doing. It was from the Old Testament. Um, but here's the thing. They prayed. They wanted God to choose. And the third thing I'll say about this is, remember, this is before Pentecost. This is before the Spirit has fallen that we'll read about next time. Um, and it's never done again in the New Testament. So is this prescriptive or descriptive? This is descriptive. There's nothing in the New Testament that says, okay, time to pick the new pastor. John got, finally got hit by a truck. Okay, get those dice up. <laughs> you know, that's not how we're supposed to do this, right? Um, and so the lot, though, fell. And it's very, the way Luke presents this is that it falls on Matthias, and he's numbered with the 11. He really is one of the guys. A lot of commentaries you'll read, and I think these are, this is not a great take is that they chose the wrong guy and that Luke really thinks that Paul should have been the guy. And the rest of the book of Acts plays out how Paul's the real 12th apostle. And they go, well, Matthias is never mentioned again. We don't really know a lot about him from church history. But Luke specifically says he was numbered with the 11. Right? He is the guy. He's the, he's the one. And so that's the passage. Now, I studied a bunch of sermons on this passage and I read some stuff and I looked around the internet have you guys heard of it they have everything on the internet and I found some sermons from some other pastors because curious how people taught this because I had a suspicion and I it, my suspicion was right most sermons on this passage go like this okay we get to the end now let's talk about suicide and let's talk about Judas and let's talk about suicide or they get to the end of this passage and they say okay now let's talk about how we make decisions in the church are we casting lots? What's a more godly way to make decisions? Or they talk about obedience. The first thing we see is the church going back to Jerusalem and waiting and praying, just like God told them to do. Okay. Or they'll go, how do we appoint leaders in the church? And they'll do a whole sermon on church eldership and that sort of stuff. But I don't think that specifically, that stuff is all in the passage, but I don't think in a big picture way, that this is what the passage is really about. I think we can tell what the main idea in this passage is 
because the point of this passage is to set up the next passage. Who knows what the next thing is in the story? No peeking. <laughs> You're all looking at your booklets. It's Pentecost. The next thing that happens is Pentecost. And this whole battle, which one of these two temples is the real temple? Which one of these two peoples of God, people that claim to be the people of God, is the real people of God? Which one of these two is the real deal? And so this passage is setting up the whole chapters 1 through 7. On the one side, we have a people who say that salvation comes from the works of the law. It comes from your birthright and then following these rules that we've made up, these burdensome rules. Instead of feeling freeing and wonderful, this religion felt harsh and it wasn't filled with joy. It was hard. And you were constantly thinking, you know, okay, so let me explain to you Judaism. I just thought of this. First century Judaism. Okay, so we had Heaven's Birthday Party, okay? And there was like this 15-year-old with a whistle who was the lifeguard. And it didn't matter what I did in the pool. Everything that I did, she blew the whistle at me, right? Okay, that's what it felt like being somebody in first century Judaism. It doesn't matter what I do. I took one too many steps, and the 15-year-old lifeguard just blew his whistle at me. Right? That's what it felt like. And it made swimming not fun. It was like, am I going to jump in the pool? Now I'm nervous. Is she looking? She turned her head, backflip, right? No, I mean, I turned, I jumped in and I turned a little bit and she blew her whistle. No spinning. And I'm like, all right, calm down, 15-year-old with a whistle. That's the first group of the, that's the first group that claims to be the people of God. The second group, though, is the people uh, who who say, who come along and say, no, 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 we're the true fulfillment of the Old Testament story. There were 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is this huge number. We have 12 apostles, right? This is the new 12. We're the fulfillment of that. And we're not about law and burdens. We're about grace and mercy. We're not about rules. We're about freedom in Christ. And once you realize that that's what this passage is really about, and it's about framing these two ways of life, works versus grace, then you can take that list of the other things that, the themes that pop up in this passage, and you can apply it to those themes. So talk like, this passage has one of the only suicides, I think one of two suicides in the Bible. I think it's this one and Samson. Is that right? Is that the only two? I don't know. I think so. And we can talk about the big question that a lot of pastors ask is, can a person who commits suicide be saved? And let's look at it through those two peoples of God. If you're a I'm in the law people of God and these burdens and these rules, then somebody who's committed suicide has done the ultimate failing to follow the law of God. It's like the, one of the worst things you could do to, to, you know, and you go, see, they didn't make it. They didn't live up to the law. But in that second system, in the gospel story, A, the world is broken, and it's broken beyond our ability to fix it. And so, of course, people suffer in a world like this, and they suffer with mental illness and all sorts of stuff. B, if somebody commits suicide, that's not the ultimate decider of their fate. It's which group of these people were they in. Right? There are pastors who I believe were saved and struggled with mental illness. I know one specifically I'm thinking of in my head who committed suicide. And that was a question, oh, did he go to heaven? Well, yeah. You know, I mean, we're all sinners, and even that sin can be forgiven. Right? And then the third thing, C, is the gospel gives people who struggle with stuff like this real hope. Right? It's, there's a freeing of guilt and sin that is taken off of our life. And a lot of people who commit, I mean, there's a lot of mental illness. I'm, don't, I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but a lot of what goes on is people commit suicide, especially who don't feel loved. And in a church community that really does this well, people feel loved and they feel the love of Christ. And it helps in this really deep struggle that people have. The second theme is making decisions. Well, the law says make the right decision, and it's up to you. And if you make the wrong one, you're screwed, right? But it's all how well you behave and how well you make decisions. But with the gospel, the gospel doesn't just say, we talk about this, the gospel doesn't just save you. It makes you into the kind of person that understands real wisdom, and you make wise decisions. Or what about, what was the other themes? Appointing leaders, right? In the law system, we need leaders who measure up to the law. We need the best and we need the brightest, and they need to run our churches, and they need to live up to the standard of behavior and all this stuff. And in the gospel, what we need is, who does God use as leaders? Who is Peter? He was a failure, right? We need people who have been broken by Christ, right? Who understand the humility 
that it takes to lead the people of God. We appoint very different kinds of people. I think it's a very good thing that I'm nowhere near the smartest person in our church, <laughs> right? There's a lot of you guys that are smarter than me, right? But what we need is not the smartest people. We need people who can stand here and say, look at what God has done in my life. Look what he's doing in your life. Or the, what was the other one, uh, fourth one? Obedience, right? In the law, it's your obey, you obey to get saved. But in the gospel system, you obey because you've been saved. There's a joy in the obedience, that we see. And so what we have to do is look at this passage as a whole and go, it's about these two different systems. It's about grace and it's about law. And we have to decide, every one of us needs to get up every day and decide, which one of these two stories am I going to live into today? Everyone needs to decide, which one of these two people are you going to be a part of? What story are you going to build your life on? The first story is that I'm going to work hard and I'm going to earn it and I can be enough and I can do it on my own. The second story is, I'm nothing, and I have no shot at this by myself. It's never going to happen. Um, well, I guess I didn't put a slide in there. Let me read you this, my favorite parable, I think. One of my favorites. I don't know. There's some good ones, but I've used this one in church 100,000 times, and I'm going to use it 100,000 more, and if you don't like it, tell Jesus. It's in the Bible. I don't know. So he told him this parable. It's from Luke 18. To some of those who trusted themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, so one was a pastor, and the other one was a tax collector, so he was like a Dodgers fan. And the Pharisee, just kidding, said, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax, like I love it, he points at the guy. This tax collector, I fast twice a week, right? I give tithes of all that I get. This guy is so proud. This is what he thinks. This, this is how I'm going to be saved. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke is continuing this idea from Luke in the book of Acts. That this is what these, this new people, this is what they're really all about. And they need to make, and we all need to respond and make a choice. Which one of these two people am I going to be a part of? Every one of us is going to die. And we're going to stand before the throne of judgment of God Almighty, the God from Ezekiel, you know, with the throne room chariot and all this stuff. We're going to stand behind this perfectly holy and wonderfully terrifying God. Are you going to stand there with all the good things you did and say to God, here you go, I hope this was enough? Right? This is like paying for a Ferrari with the change from your piggy bank. You break the bank, you walk in like $8 in quarters, and you go, is this enough? And God says, no. Or are you going to stand there and say, everything that I ever did, look at it, it's pathetic. It doesn't even come close to paying the debt that I owe. I'm a sinner, but I'm part of this story. I'm part of this people who are the continuation of the story of the Old Testament. I'm part of the redeemed. And the only thing that I stand here hoping is that you'll accept me based off of the work of Christ because he died and because he rose again. Amen?